0: welcome to the teaching ministry of bay ridge christian church this teaching is from the series the king is coming this series looks at seven titles of the coming messiah found in the book of isaiah these titles were all part of a special series of songs that christians in earlier times sang the week before christmas culminating on christmas eve with the singing of "O come O come emmanuel we hope this helps you focus on the glory of jesus our coming king We're going to be looking today at Isaiah chapter 49 as we are continuing on with this uh, sixth out of seven titles of Jesus out of the book of Isaiah uh, that the church formed into the uh, songs that uh, our choir has been doing such a great job of that were known as the O Antiphons. Today we're gonna be looking at the King of the Nations. O King of the Nations. We'll be looking at Isaiah chapter 49 Again, verses five to seven, it's in your booklet there, it'll be up on the screens, and you can also follow along uh, in your Bibles, which I encourage. So Isaiah chapter 49, verses five to seven. Hear now the word of your sovereign king. And the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and to bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. One of my favorite stories, and it was turned into a series of movies, was the Lord of the Rings series. And early in that series, uh, a couple of the hobbits, these little unimpressive creatures are off and they come up to an inn uh, and there's a man in the corner. And when you first see him, he just looks like some kind of a scruffy, wandering guy. Uh, He doesn't look particularly impressive, but if you have any thought, it might be that he's dangerous, that you kind of want to stay away from the man. and. This is kind of your impression. It turns out that he is a ranger. He's a a guy who wanders around. It's out of this, you may see the bumper sticker that says, not all who wander are lost. It's kind of coming out of this idea because the man in the corner, who they learned to call Strider initially, is actually a guy named Aragorn. And the point that Tolkien is making is, the initial appearance is not who he actually is. He looks like a shabby wanderer or a dangerous vagabond, but in fact, he's the king. He's the one who's going to restore, right, cut down the evil uh, Lord Sauron and lead in the fight to crush him. And interestingly enough, it's a major theme in Tolkien's writing because the ones that are mainly going to join with him and do this are not mighty people, it's these little hobbits that nobody pays attention to. They're a lot more than what first meets the eye. And Tolkien, being a Christian author, has done it this way because he's reflecting on the way God himself oftentimes works. What things appear to be initially is often not the way they really are. And never do we see anything more true of that than when Jesus himself comes and is working uh, to bring redemption to us. Now we've seen in this series already, in Isaiah chapter nine, for example, in one of the most famous texts of Isaiah, we read about the one who's gonna be the prince of peace and the government's gonna be on his shoulder and he's gonna sit on David's throne as king. Bobby taught so well a couple of weeks ago out of Isaiah 22, where we're told that the key of David was placed on his shoulder, and that was a key of authority, a a key of government. Uh, And so the coming one is, in fact, a king. But today we want to ask ourselves, what kind of king is he? Is he going to come? We have our idea of what that would mean, but just as Tolkien had it in The Lord of the Rings, we find out that our ideas don't always line up with reality. So let's dig in and talk about this coming king who is in fact the king of the Jews. Now of course, the Messiah, it makes sense, would be the king of the Jews. He's the king who's coming to restore Israel. So notice in verse five in our text, we read that he is the servant to bring Jacob back to him and to gather Israel to himself. The Messiah is the servant, which is another important title in Isaiah that we're not covering in this series, but he's a servant to do a particular task, and that task is he's going to restore Israel. He's going to bring Israel back. In Isaiah 49, uh, Isaiah is speaking to the future exiles. From chapter 40 on, Isaiah is about the exiles, the people who were going to leave, and they were sent into exile because they had forsaken the covenant. And God had warned them, if you forsake the covenant, you will be sent away into exile. And so they were actually carried away into exile. Oddly enough, Early, and in many of these titles we've seen, they thought it was Assyria was the great danger, and they reached out to Babylon to help them, and Isaiah said, the very thing you reached out to is now going to be the snare. They had first reached to Assyria to help them against the northern tribes, Judah had, and Isaiah said, that's going to bring Assyria here, and you're not going to like the results, and then they reached out to Babylon to deliver them from Assyria, and Isaiah said, now that's who's actually going to carry you into exile and so the servant's going to have to come and restore them because even though Israel has forsaken the covenant, God has not set aside his plans. He is still going to accomplish his work, and so the Messiah, because he's the one who's going to restore Israel, in the exilic period, he became known as the desired of Israel. He was the one that Israel desired. In Malachi chapter three, verse one, We read this, Malachi is uh, the, the last book written in the Old Testament, and it says, "'See, I will send my messenger "'who will prepare the way before me,' which is a prophecy we're told in the New Testament of John the Baptist. "'Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking "'will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant "'whom you desire will come.'" So notice here he's saying that this one's gonna come, and it's what you've been desiring. You've been seeking and wanting the messenger of the covenant to come, the one who's going to restore you, and what you have longed for is actually going to happen. I, the Lord, am going to come to you. Uh, I'm going to send the messenger of the covenant. He's going to restore the broken covenant and restore the people, and he is the one whom you have desired. So the Messiah is the promised king He's desired by God's people, Israel, who and he was going to come and restore them to covenant blessings. Now, again, we would have an idea out of that what this is going to look like. And if we were writing the story, he would come in, he would be received, they would recognize him, and they would love and worship him. But we all know, in fact, that's not what happened and actually it's prophesied that's not what's going to happen. Because the second thing is the coming king is not only the king of the Jews, he is the rejected king. And the amazing thing is he's not rejected by the enemies of God's people, he's rejected by his own people. Uh, if you go back one verse before where we started our text, Isaiah is writing, and, and he's kind of standing in for what it's going to be like for the Messiah, and he says this, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And so notice here that speaking of what it's going to be like for the messiah it's going to appear that when the messiah comes far from being the conquering king initially it's going to look like all of his labor was in vain it's going to look like nothing is accomplished because the people in fact are going to reject the messiah their king but he's going to be noticed rewarded by God, he's going to be honored by God because the Lord is going to be his strength. And so it appears at first, despite, contrary to what we would think, he's rejected and it appears that it's all going to come to naught. But God is the great reverser and we'll come to that in a couple of moments. So in the poems, you know, we've been reading these poems by Malcolm Gite uh, to help guide us in thinking about this. Notice how Malcolm Gite in the poem, O Rex Gentium, in, in this thing, he deals a lot with the king being rejected. Uh, he, just part of the poem says this. O king of our desire, whom we despise. What, what a strange turn of phrase. We desire you, but we despise you. King of the nations, never on the throne. Unfound foundation, cast off cornerstone. Rejected joiner, making many one. You have no form or beauty for our eyes. Notice the whole juxtaposition. We desire you, but we despise you. You're the unfound foundation. He's kind of doing a double word there, unfound in the sense of you don't have a foundation. You weren't ever laid down. You're the eternal foundation. But even though you're the foundation for God's people, even though you're the foundation of the temple, in fact, we don't recognize that. We we trip over that. We miss you. We cast you off as the cornerstone. You're the joiner to bring two together, but we reject you. And the reason is you don't have the former beauty for our eyes. You're not what we're looking for, what he's pointing out here is, despite the fact that this is the coming king, he's going to restore the people of God. He's the prophesied one. When he actually shows up, they're like, "This is not what I thought it was going to be." I, 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 can can I get? Uh, I've got buyer's remorse. Can I get a refund? That's what the people of God are thinking, and that's the focus of much of Malcolm Gates' poem. Now the. Question is, why does he do that? Why does he bring that out here when we're talking about the king of the nations? Well, the reason is because a major theme and thread of the Messiah coming is the fact that he is the foundation stone, he is the cornerstone who is going to be rejected. Isaiah, for example, in Isaiah 28, 16 refers To the coming Messiah, this way See, I lay a stone in Zion. This is Yahweh speaking a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. And the one who trusts in him will never be dismayed. So God is saying, Look, everything is being shaken but I've got a sure foundation for you. The whole building seems to be falling apart, but I've got a tested, a precious, a good stone that you can trust in, and you need to turn and trust in that stone, and if you do, I promise, no matter what shaking goes on around you, you will be okay, you will never be dismayed, you will never be shamed for trusting in this corner stone. And so the whole world around you may shake, but you're to cling to this stone. But unfortunately, Isaiah also tells us that though this stone was coming for that purpose, shockingly, he was going to be rejected by the people. In Isaiah chapter eight, where we're actually at the beginning of the story and the king had been told don't turn to Assyria, turn to God, and instead he turned to Assyria. Here's the prophecy that comes. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. See, the king was fearing nations around him. He was thinking they had power. And Isaiah says, don't do that. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Yahweh's the one you are to fear. Yahweh's the one who rules. He's the one who has power. You have your fear towards him. So he says, he's the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary. There's kind of a play on words there. He's the temple itself. But secondly, he's the place of safety for you. Yahweh is where you are to flee for safety, not to other people. Just as the people of God still struggle with understanding this. We put our trust and our hope in anything and everything other than God himself. We are constantly tempted to believe if just if this celebrity, now that they got saved, oh, this is gonna make the gospel accepted, as if the gospel needs any help to accomplish the work of God. Or if we can just get this politician elected, or if we can get this law passed. Friend, none of that is going to be the sanctuary for you or I. Yahweh himself is the one who does that. And so he tells them to do that, but notice, so he's gonna be the sanctuary, but for the, both houses of Israel, He will be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Notice here the shocking thing. You would think it would be that he's a stone that the enemies of God's people are gonna trip over, but Isaiah says no, actually God's people are gonna trip over the very stone that's supposed to be their salvation. They're going to trip over him and they're gonna stumble. And this is also building out of uh, the Psalms. In Psalm 118, We read, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So notice here, there's an idea, if you've ever been around like construction, not that I've done much construction, but I've heard this, I read this in a book. Greg can verify what I'm saying. True. One of the things that they do sometimes is you've got to make sure that the material you're using is good, and they'll check it, and sometimes they cast a board aside. Or if you're doing masonry, you'll say this stone is no good. God is saying, I've given you the best stone. I've tested it. I've tried it. It's precious. It's sure. It's right. And he says the builders look at it and say, eh, that's not what we want and they throw it aside. But the psalmist says, yeah, well, the builders rejected it, but God said, no, it's the cornerstone of the whole building. Now, I brought these three texts up, not just randomly. There are other texts that talk about stones, but because, in fact, they are brought together in the New Testament. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 about the stone the builders rejecting becoming the cornerstone to the Jewish leaders who were rejecting him and he said, don't you understand this is right there in your scriptures. It says I'm going to come and you are going to reject me. He quotes this in uh, Matthew 21, 42, in Mark 12, 10 and 11 and in Luke 20, 17 and you can look it up in the notes later. Peter brings all of them together when he's writing to the Gentile church in Asia and he says this, For in scripture it says, see I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. That's Isaiah 28 that we looked at. It says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone or its cornerstone, it's the same word and concept. And so he's quoting Psalm 118 there and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Notice Peter ties all these together because he's saying they're all about the stone. They're all about this same thing, that the Messiah is coming. And the shocking thing is when he comes, even though we said we desired him, even though we've been crying out for him to come, when he actually shows up, we're not happy with what we see. And the the scary thing is actually the, the, the Greek word there for for they've tested him, is literally they've looked at it. They've rejected it. They used to use it for when you would hold pottery up, and if a piece of pottery was defective and cracked, they would try to fill it in with wax. And so if you held it up to the sun, you could see that it was no good, and then you would cast it aside. That's the idea that's being used. They held up God's stone. It's not that they weren't aware of it. They held it up and said, does not meet our desire does not meet what we expected and what we wanted, and we're throwing it aside. Now, that's a shocking twist in the story. They've, they've been looking and crying out for wisdom, for the Lord to come to them, for the root of Jesse and the branch uh, to come out, the key of David, the spring. all these things they'd say they've been crying out for, and they're crying out for their king to come and rescue them. And when he shows up, they look at him, they test him, And they reject him and cast him aside. Now, not only is this true in this text, this is actually a principle all over Scripture. That the one who's coming, and when God is at work, it usually begins with rejection. For example, if you consider all the way back in the garden, Adam and Eve, fresh in the destruction that they have brought upon all of us there in the garden, and God promises he's going to come and save, but the seed of the woman that's going to save first is going to be bruised. His heel is going to be bit by the serpent before he crushes the serpent's head. Bruising comes before conquering. Israel is told they're gonna be given the Promised Land, but first they're going to endure 400 years of slavery, then they will be delivered, then they will come into their inheritance. King David's life, he's the young king, he's the, the prototype of the Messiah, and in his life he is anointed, and then he spends over two decades running around being pursued as a fugitive, Fleeing for his life before he actually comes to the throne. The book that's most closely associated with him, the book of Psalms, is always lamentation and then praise. Within individual Psalms, it begins with, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Long before it gets to, Oh, you delivered me. And in fact, the entire book of Psalms is structured. If you look up front, Psalm 3 is a lament, Psalm 4 is a lament, Psalm 5 is a lament, Psalm 6 is a lament, Psalm 7 is a lament. Can anybody get the pattern we're building here? And you get to the end, Psalm 146 is praise, Psalm 147 is praise, Psalm 148 is praise, Psalm 149 is praise, Psalm 150 is praise. The entire structure is from lamentation to praise. This is a principle throughout the scripture. And so in Isaiah, the coming king is first the suffering servant. Before he becomes king, he's rejected and he suffers. In scripture, Lamentation is prior to praise, the cross precedes the crown, and rejection comes before glory. And this is nowhere seen more clearly and more preeminently fulfilled than in the life of Jesus Christ. So, it's a surprising twist, but if you've been reading the scriptures, it shouldn't be. It would only be surprising if it didn't follow this pattern. Now, How's the story resolved then? Well then we get to the, the phrase the king of the nations. We're talking about him being rejected. What does this have to do with the king of the nations? Well, the amazing thing is God sees the rejection and he rejects the rejection. He overrules the rejection and says no, I do not accept your judgment. Notice in verses six and seven, he says, It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation. Uh, uh, To the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the only one of Israel who has chosen you. God says, I send you to my own people and they will reject you and I will reject their rejection because I have chosen you. And it does not matter if they do not choose you, I have chosen you. And in fact, while they have rejected you from being king, I'm not only not listening to that, you're not only going to be the king over Israel, I'm going to extend your rule to the ends of the earth. You will be king over all. The nations. So it's not just that you get what they are rejecting you from having. I'm going to give you even more. This is the way of God. You were despised and abhorred. Your own people, your own leaders refused to bow before you. I'm telling you, kings and princes from around the world are going to come and they are going to bow down before you because I have chosen you friends this is the great reversal and it is the way that god works in the scripture the rejected stone is now the cornerstone of all the rejected king over israel is not only king over israel he's king over all nations this is the way that god works and so he not only now was he was the desired of israel who they rejected God also tells us he's going to be the desired of all nations. In, in one of our Christmas carols, we sing this, O Desire of Nations, come, fixing us our, your eternal home. This comes out of Haggai chapter 2. Haggai two seven. God says, I will shake the nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with Glory, says the Lord Almighty. Now you got to understand, when Haggai's saying this, these words, you would think like somebody slipped some drugs in what this guy was drinking. Because Israel is falling apart. And yet Haggai says, not only is the Messiah coming going to be the desired of Israel, he's going to be the desired of all nations. And this little temple that has been being rebuilt on the ruins of the glorious temple that was torn down, I'm telling you, I'm gonna fill it with glory. I'm going to come and you're going to see my work. It seemed utterly improbable in the days of the prophets, but it came to pass. It seemed utterly improbable in the days of the apostles. Don't don't make a mistake. When Jesus dies and is raised and even ascends into heaven, nobody's taken bets. If Las Vegas had existed back then, the odds are not in favor of the church and the gospel. We are a small, despised minority with no access to the halls of power, none of which matters because the only power that matters is God on the throne. And he has given himself to his people. And so this is what Isaiah had promised was going to happen. In Isaiah chapter two, way back at the beginning of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah had said this. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." This seemed utterly unbelievable in Isaiah's day. It did not even look as if Judah and Jerusalem were going to survive. So to talk about them becoming the greatest was nonsensical. If you ever go over there, of course, what's the tallest mountain in the world? Mount Everest, right? But see, God is saying, oh, no, 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 it's Mount Zion, which isn't even a foothill. Next to Mount Everest. But God says, but I'm telling you in my calculation, Everest will be a foothill to what I'm going to do. I'm telling you Judah and Jerusalem look like nothing. The nations are going to stream to them. My Messiah is going to be the desire to many nations. They are going to flood in to my people. And through the ages, I want you to understand, people have endured suffering, persecution and even death as long as they can have Jesus. And it happens right down to this day. There is no group suffering more than Christians around the globe. Not gonna see it on the six o'clock news tonight, but it's a fact. Okay, I was just chatting with our son John when he was just over in Africa I read that when he was in Kenya, some Kenyans had been killed by Al Shabaab, and I immediately texted somebody and said, "Have you heard? Not to be a nervous dad, but have you heard from Johnny, is, is everything okay?" And then I found he had, he had written the article that that, uh, that that I had kind of seen. So, so it uh, in, in bringing that up and say there's persecution going on everywhere. It's current. It's today. Why do Christians do that? Because when you found Jesus. None of that other stuff matters. He's the one you desire. He is the one for whom you are made. When Isaiah said that, it seemed crazy. It made no sense at all. It's kinda like a shabby dude in the corner, and you hear he's actually the king. He looks like nothing, and you hear the evil power that is ruling over the whole world. He's going to cut him down, and he's going to rule and reign. It sounds crazy unless you've been reading God's Word. And you know that this is the way that God works. And so the cornerstone is going to join and bring together God's people. He's not only the king of Israel, he's the king of the nations. He's the cornerstone of God's one redeemed people comprised of Jew and Gentile, everyone who believes in him, and is therefore never put to shame. This is all over the New Testament. I'll just give one little passage. In Ephesians chapter 2, uh, Verses 19 to 21, Paul's likening the church to the temple of God, and he says this. Consequently, he's speaking to Gentiles. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. See, the cornerstone is where the, the two walls come together and it sets everything in place. And Paul's saying the the stone that got thrown away, God's made the cornerstone of the entire building. And the two walls, thanks be to God, are not only believing Jews, it's believing Gentiles. Because when Israel rejected, God didn't say, oh, well, I guess that's the end of my plan. He said, no, then I expand my plan. I call you and I raise it one. He's not only going to be the king over Judah and Jerusalem, he's going to be the king over the whole earth. He's not only going to be a temple and a sanctuary for God's people at present, he's going to draw in the Gentiles. He brings everything together. And so Jesus is the cornerstone and king, rejected by his own people when he came, but he has been given rule over all nations. That's what it means that he's the king of the nations. Now, how do we apply this today? Two things, and on the first one I'm gonna be brief because we've talked about this other times in recent weeks, but I can't come to a text like this and not comment on it. First question, am I missing God's work in the world? I say this all the time. There is far too much being down in the mouth in the church in America about what is going on. The church is not in trouble the church is thriving around the globe the gospel has never been spreading faster than it is right now as i am speaking you the 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 place i just was i'm watching the church on fire and going out it is spreading all over africa south america southeast asia if you are down in the mouth about the church lift up your eyes He is the king of the nations. The gospel is going to prosper. Now now hear me this. I do not know when Jesus comes back if America will even exist as a nation. I don't know that. I do know this. The church will be spread from sea to shining sea. The gospel will cover the earth as the waters cover the ocean. Everywhere the sun shines, the gospel will be there and there will be people from every tribe and language and nation. And I don't know this because it's positive thinking. I know this because God has made covenant and promised it. God has stated this is the case. We should always be optimists. Friend, the worst they can do is strike your eye down And God will say, I reject the rejection. I raise them from the dead. Your move. That's the worst they can do. God will rule and reign. Please, 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 do do your old pastor's heart some good. Don't be down in the mouth. Be an optimist. God is at work. Believe that. Pray for that, look for that, this is what matters. The gospel is prospering around the world, and that's what we cling to. So I I wanna encourage you, don't miss God's work. When God says he's the king of the nations, it, it didn't make any sense in Isaiah's day it didn't make sense with the two guys walking down the road to Emmaus. We thought he was the one. And what does Jesus say? Oh, you are so foolish and so slow of heart. Don't you understand what the scripture said? Don't you understand how it's written? Don't you I am the king of the nations. This is the way it's always been. Believe that. Second question, and this one's going to get very personal for us. Am I missing God's work in my own life? See, this is where a king of the nations gets to be a rub. The king came, and he didn't look like they expected. The king came, and he didn't act like they expected. The king came, and he didn't do what they wanted, how they wanted it done in the time they wanted it. And so they said, this isn't God. And they were wrong. God was at work. Everything they had been crying out for for centuries was coming to fulfillment right in front of them, and they missed it. Because they had a wrong conception of what God was going to do. See, culture back in the ancient world, who who was the one who received the inheritance and got the double portion and the one that, that everything was given to? the firstborn. But if you noticed in Scripture, was it Cain or was it Abel? Was it Ishmael or was it Isaac? Was it Jacob or was it Esau? I can keep building this principle if you want. God's ways are not our ways. Israel wants a king, they choose Saul. Because Saul looks like A king. God says, I got a scrawny teenage shepherd boy. He's the one I want. Because I see, see, you see big body, I see little heart. You over here see young, young little boy, I see big heart. So God chooses differently than we do. And so when the king comes, he comes as a lowly servant. We, we don't expect him to be born and laid in a manger. We expect him to be in a palace. It's the way we think. And so most people missed and rejected him. I again go back to the poem by Malcolm Geit, where he says, you have no form or beauty for our eyes. A king who comes to give away his crown." a king within our rags of flesh and bone. O king within the child, within the clay, O hidden king. See, that's the way it appears to us. We look and it's just not what we thought it was going to be. So here's the question. We're gonna let the Holy Spirit work right now. Where is God coming in unexpected ways in my life that I've been missing? Where is the king of the nations coming in and I don't even see it? So I've thrown up a few areas here and it may be one of these, it might be something different. Maybe it's suffering in my life. See, there's a lot of books that'll tell you today when suffering comes, you say, get thee behind me, Satan. And Jesus may say, that's not my name. Sometimes God's at work in our suffering. Paul told the Galatians, I got to preach to you and the gospel came to you because I had a sickness. And I had my plans and I got derailed because of my physical illness, but God was at work. He also talked about his thorn in the flesh. Maybe there's some kind of suffering going on in my life And God is speaking to me, but I'm so busy wanting the suffering to be gone. I'm not a Sadomasochist. I don't like suffering. I'm looking forward to new heavens and new earth where there is no suffering. But that's not where we live right now. Maybe God's at work in suffering. Maybe there's a difficult relationship. Somebody I just do not like and do not get along with. I had one time where I was laying home recovering from a surgery and I was reading a book on holiness and feeling okay about things. And then I felt God speak to me about some gossip I was doing at work because there was a coworker I did not like. And God was very clear that I have you there for a purpose and you need to respond rightly in this relationship. And I had to learn holiness included not joining in in all the water cooler gossip despite the fact I had some very funny comebacks. They just happened to be very wicked. Sometimes a difficult relationship is the king of the nations coming in and saying, I'm at work. And the test is don't throw that stone away. It's getting really quiet. Third, it might be physical sickness or trouble. Aren't these joyful things? But see, God's at work sometimes. I remember a few years ago when I was having the back problem and I was like, I'm trying to get back up and run a half marathon or something again and I'm laying three times a week on a bed that's stretching my back out. And the pain is, I'm having a hard time sleeping at night and everything else. But I do remember laying there in the dark, saying, okay, well here I am again. You must be trying to say something to me. And probably I was too busy running around, so this was the way to get my attention. Sometimes God works that way. Sometimes a trouble comes in. Sometimes it's a small opportunity. I want the big opportunity. See, they wanted a king. And what did a king look like? He came in on a white horse And he was going to slay the Romans, except for he didn't look that way at all. And when he stood before the Romans, he stood before Pilate, and he allowed himself to be put to death, right up to the cross. It's not as if this was just a short thing. For 33 years, they had the opportunity, and right up to the cross, what were they saying? Oh, well, if you're really God's Messiah, then you come down off the cross, as a, as a young believer, I was like, Jesus, why do not you just come down and smack him around a little bit, and then you can go back up on it and finish it. That's the way Brett thinks. Okay? Sometimes it's, it's that small thing, and we're looking for the big thing. And God's saying, the king is here in that small thing and I can miss it and throw it aside. Maybe it's a a new potential way to serve other people that God's opened up. Just some way that is there. You weren't even expecting it. It just came out of nowhere. And God says, this is what I'm calling you to do. Now, maybe it's something else, but I throw those up there, and I want you to think for a moment. Because what we're asking ourselves is, where is the Holy Spirit telling me, the king has come, the stone is here and it's laid down and I'm having the temptation to throw it aside or to trip over it? When God's saying, no, this is where I'm working. This, the desire that you had, this is the fulfillment of that desire. And I wish I could tell you, I'm, I'm what, 40? Two years into this walk now and I wish I could tell you that at 42 years, oh, I see the stone when it's there now. I see when God's at work except for I often don't. It, it's a lot of bruised shins. So which way is the Holy Spirit working? How can I receive God's hidden work in this season and then let it be a blessing to others? Because see, the We live a life of pilgrimage. What Abraham thought God was going to do, it sure didn't look like it when God was doing it. All the way through scripture. So the king of the nations. Oddly enough, what this speaks to you and I is a hidden king. A king who doesn't appear to be on the throne. So how do we respond? Now I want you to look at that list again. And I'm going to pray for us in just a moment to close. And if the Spirit is speaking to you about one of these or something else, I want you to reach out and ask God, Lord, I want to respond. This thing that I was about to throw away, I I want you to build something on that. I I want that to become a a a building you're working in my life and we're gonna ask the Holy Spirit to, to draw us in and work with us on this. So let's stand together, and I'll pray, but again, I want you to pray along with me. I hope you see somewhat of the irony. You might have thought when we started talking about having a choir sing songs in Latin, songs that were written 1,500 years ago. This was going to be a history lesson that had very little to do with our current lives. I trust you've seen in the series the Holy Spirit's actually been working pretty, pretty directly and personally in our current lives today. God again surprises in the way He works. So let's join in together and pray. Oh Lord Jesus, you are the coming King. You are the one who has prophesied that you were going to come and restore your people. There were so many prophecies. The people were longing and desiring and looking. And then when you came, you were not what they expected. And Lord, we see that pattern over and over and over again in Scripture. And so Lord, we are asking you by your Holy Spirit to reveal where you are coming to do a new work. Lord, we do not want to be those who would throw the stone aside. God, what you have said is chosen, we want to choose. What you have said is precious, we want it to be precious in our eyes. Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see Give us ears to hear, heart to believe. Father, as you overruled when wicked men rejected your Messiah and your King, and you said it's too small a thing, I'm not going to have you just restore Israel, you're going to restore all the nations to me. Lord, we ask that your work would not be rejected in us and restricted, but that it would be expanded. Lord God, much of the world today would reject the gospel, but we ask that you would establish the gospel. In the far corners of the earth, oh God, we ask that you would extend your rule and your reign. We pray that many, many more would come in To the kingdom. Lord, there are those who are prophesying the death of the church, that are prophesying the end of the gospel and the end of this era. Oh God, they do not rule and reign. You do. So, Lord, we ask that you would reject their rejection, you would extend your kingdom to the farthest corners of the globe. And Lord God, we also pray in our own lives, Lord, would you extend your kingdom. We don't want it constricted. We want it growing and ever expanding into every part of our life. Lord, I pray in the area where we may have been missing what you're doing, maybe it's suffering or that relationship that we are struggling with. Lord, maybe it's even physical sickness or trouble, some kind of a small opportunity that we quite honestly just despise. Father, maybe it's we're looking to rule when you're calling us to serve. Spirit of the living God, you who hovered over the chaotic waters and brought forth light and life. Come upon us now. Form, fashion, shape, illumine that we might see and know where Jesus is coming into our life. And Lord, we ask that as was prophesied in Isaiah that we would be like the kings Lord, that we would not reject, but we would bow down. We would embrace what you are doing, not only in the earth today, but in our very lives. Father, we ask that you would do all of this in the mighty name of Jesus, for your glory, for our good and the good of the people you love. Amen. Amen. I encourage you now, I'm going to speak the word of blessing out of Psalm 67, God's work around the world. I encourage you to receive God's blessing and then go forth and be a blessing. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that his ways may be known on earth, his salvation among all nations. Go forth full of God's blessing and be a blessing. Amen. See everyone on Christmas Eve. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.